This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. My church in Cambridge is full of young graduate students who come from all over the country. And there's something that happens there really regularly that drives my wife, Maria, crazy. Whenever we meet a new person or a couple, and my wife and I are standing together, they 99% of the time will look at me first and ask me, so what do you do? Sometimes they'll ask Maria if she works, but very often they don't ask at all, just assuming that she takes care of our children full time. These kinds of default assumptions about the social roles of men and women is one of the central ideas of the French philosopher and writer Simone de Beauvoir's 1949 book, The Second Sex. The Second Sex was incredibly empowering because it revealed the myths and norms that perpetuated male dominance over women. The second sex changed the world in so many ways. Without the second sex, I am quite sure that women's situation in at least in the Western world today would be totally different. It's just foundational to the culture we live in today for women. I'm Toral Moy. I teach at Duke University, where I'm the James P. Duke Professor of Literature, Romance Studies, and Professor of English, Philosophy, and Theater Studies. The Second Sex was written in French, but Professor Moy first read a Norwegian translation when she was a high schooler in Norway, and it ended up profoundly impacting her. You find the books you need when you need them. For me to pick up The Second Sex when I was 15, it, it, that book was meant for me and it shaped my life. It really is a refrain you hear about The Second Sex when you read about its effect. You can find women in Japan, India, Africa, everywhere who says, I read that book and it changed my life. And that was true for me too. The second sex shattered commonly held beliefs of what a woman's life could be, opening up new dreams and possibilities. I realized that that there was a world out there where women didn't just have to stay at home and be housewives and bring up children. You should realize I grew up in the countryside in Norway where there were no jobs for women. The only women who worked outside the home that I knew and could see around me were teachers in elementary school, also a couple of high school teachers. I suppose there must have been some nurses, but we didn't know any. And of course, all the doctors were men back then. So um, I was thinking, I don't want to spend my life in a little village in Norway. I don't know, working on a farm, bringing up children. And here's this woman who tells me that I too can go out in the world and do things. And that it's actually unfair, unjust, and a limitation of my freedom to tell me I can't. I just loved it. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Toral Moy to discuss Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex. Let's talk about Simone de Beauvoir. Um, 
How did she prepare to become a writer who changed all these women's lives? Well, Simone de Beauvoir was born in 1908. She died in 1986. She was born in Paris into a very conservative Catholic family. She was the eldest of two sisters. And uh, given that she was born into a sort of... uh, conservative, correct-thinking Catholic family. She was sent to Catholic girls' schools, which where she was taught by nuns. She was um, never allowed to do anything without the supervision of her mother until she was 18. Her mother read all the letters she received before she passed them on to Simone because the whole culture she grew up in was one in which... Um, Catholic young girl has to be extremely innocent, unaware of sexuality, lead an utterly blameless life. And that included things like um, limiting women's access to sports, for example, because let, let's face it, running around playing tennis, you show off a lot of body and so on. And how did she begin her academic or intellectual life? With this background, she actually had a very bad starting point from becoming a major intellectual of the 20th century. Because the intellectual level of private Catholic schools for girls was way below the public high schools in the very good French lycée system. Beauvoir did have one year of philosophy education in her Catholic school. But the curriculum didn't exactly encourage free thinking. The priest who taught the class apparently just read from the textbook. Beauvoir's luck changed after the First World War, when her father lost all of his money. This was terrible news for the family, but it was great news for Beauvoir herself. Beauvoir's father had planned to marry his daughter off and give her money to help establish her new family. Without money of her own, she wouldn't be able to marry a wealthy husband. And he realized that his daughters would need an education because they might have to fend for themselves. So Bova was allowed to go to university because they had no money. And even so, she wanted to study at the Sorbonne, but that was seen as too godless. So she was sent to the Institut Catholique, which was a Catholic university where she wanted to study philosophy, but philosophy was also seen as a godless subject because, um, it, well, it's not theology, essentially. So so she was stuck doing classics at the Institut Catholique. She did Greek and Latin and so on, um, and stuck in doing that for about a year and then she said uh, then she put her foot down and said I want to study philosophy and she went to the Sorbonne and of course had a huge amount of catching up to do. The Sorbonne also known as the University of Paris was the most prestigious university in France and Beauvoir totally thrived. Towards the end of her studies she made friends with another philosophy student named Jean-Paul Sartre. Sartre and Beauvoir were both interested in existential philosophy and phenomenology, which emphasized individual experience and freedom of choice. By the time the two of them meet, when they're preparing their final philosophy exam, the so-called aggregation, which would guarantee them a job in the school system, 
he had studied philosophy for something like eight years in the best institutions, and she had done five in rather less impressive institutions. And in that exams, considered the most difficult in France, he came first and she came second. But what the textbooks don't tell you is that he that was the second time Sartre took it. He failed the year before and she was trying it for the first time. So, but we'll, they lived in a sexist culture and Sartre took it as his birthright to be number one at the aggregation of philosophy. And Beauvoir seemed to have accepted that she was second in philosophy to Sartre, but second only to Sartre. And although Beauvoir always puts herself down as a, a lesser philosopher than Sartre, on my reading, she never claims to be a lesser philosopher than anyone else. So there's that. So um, after she graduated, what did she do for, you know, her writing career or her working career leading up to writing The Second Sex? She always wanted to be a writer, but of course she needed money. So she passed the aggregation. That gave her a paid job in the state system. And until the year before she started working, women teachers were paid less than men teachers. So even though they had the same education, but that was changed the year before Simone de Beauvoir could um, started teaching. So Beauvoir, in fact, never had the experience of being paid less than men for the same work. But that was like by the nick of time. If she had been a few years older, she couldn't even have studied for the aggregation in philosophy alongside men because they was kept separate for many years. So she had this meritocratic attitude. I, I obviously can do exactly what I want and look, it's working. For the next two years, Beauvoir lived in Paris and worked as a high school teacher. Around this time, she developed a romantic partnership with Sartre that would last roughly 50 years until his death in 1980. Although she had a steady job as a teacher, Beauvoir's true interest was in writing. She began with short stories and novels. And you have to realize that if, if we say she starts writing, trying to become a writer alongside being a high school teacher in 1929, her first novel, L'Invité, was published in 1943. That's 14 years of trying and failing <laughs> to become a writer. Beauvoir experimented with different styles, such as novels, dramas, and nonfiction. She published six more works before writing The Second Sex. I think the key thing in her background to understand The Second Sex is this. She writes in her diary somewhere, that when, or in her memoirs, that she writes, when I was 23 and studied philosophy. I did not think of myself as a woman. I thought of myself as me. I was me, and that was all there was to it. And then after World War II, after you know history has rolled in over their lives and that of all of the French, then she starts thinking that she would like to write an autobiography. Uh, this is a theory, an idea she comes up with in 1946. And she, as the, Sartre and Beauvoir discussed all their projects 
always together every day. They read each other's text and commented and so on. And Bova says to Sartre, well, I think I want to write about myself for my next book. And Sartre says, well, shouldn't you ask yourself what it has meant for you to be a woman? And Beauvoir answers, according to her own account, oh, oh, surely that hasn't mattered. That hasn't made any difference. And, and Sartre says, well, you weren't brought up like a boy was. I, I think you should think more about that. So Beauvoir took his advice, decided to think a bit more, and went to the Bibliothèque Nationale, the National Library in Paris, and started reading up on what she calls myths of women. And voila, put aside the memoirs and started writing The Second Sex. And so she, in a fact, you can read The Second Sex as a book in which Simone de Beauvoir discovers that she is a woman and what that has meant to her. I think that's what gives it its power. Yeah, it it, it, it would have to, right? It, it's as though she also is discovering these truths in real time, which probably accounts for some of the, you know, the urgency of the writing and, and the, the sense of discovery. The energy, the urgency <clears throat> is phenomenal. First of all, the second sex is like a UFO in the French intellectual landscape. In the immediate post-war period, the book was published in 1949, there was no women's movement. This was the reconstruction after the war. People were trying to build up the country. There simply was no debate on these things. This was just Beauvoir's wish to get clear on this issue. What does it mean to be born a woman? That's what the second sex does. What are the implications? One should say that an important ingredient in Beauvoir's understanding of women's situation actually comes from the United States because in 1947 she spent five months in America and visited all around the country and you can find a lot of examples from American women in the second sex. She also read quite a bit of American work. She was deeply inspired also by Gunnar Myrdal, the Swedish uh, intellectual sociological analysis of the race relations in America. His analysis of the discrimination against African Americans actually influenced Beauvoir's understanding of how women's oppression works. In the introduction of the text, Beauvoir asked this question, which, rather incredibly, few had asked before. What is a woman? And she says, well, the Platonist, or we would call them the essentialist, says it's an essence. And Boa dismisses that. And then the nominalist says, oh, it's nothing. It's just the name. She dismisses that. That seems a little too quick. And then she says, well, but where should we begin then? And this is where you can see her philosophical background as a phenomenologist and existentialist. She says, let's bracket the question of what a woman actually is. Let's just say that right now, when I look around, I walk down the street, it looks as if there are roughly two categories of human beings with different gates and different clothes and all this. That's not a philosophical commitment to any kind of difference, but let's begin by inve investigating this. 
And um, that's what she does. And then she says, with this starting point, knowing that these differences may turn out to be provisional or based on nothing whatsoever, I will ask again, what is a woman? And then comes the extremely original turn, which goes right back to the autobiographical starting point, which is the idea that she says, okay, I'm asking again, what is a woman? Then she says, the first thing that strikes me when I think of how to answer is that I am a woman. And then she says, a man can write a book without drawing attention to the fact that he is a man. But I know that when I begin, I must say that I am a woman for this is the background against which all I say, will be heard. The fact that she is a woman cannot be detached by her. Everyone will hear her words against that background, which is that she's a woman. Whereas the man can hold forth without reminding anyone that he's a man. We say man and he when we mean the universal. So man is the universal, woman is the particular, he is the subject, she is the object, he is the absolute, she is the relative, he is the one, she is the other. And that insight that woman, culturally speaking, under patriarchy, woman is the other, is the fundamental idea in the second sex, and it is genius. So this insight that men are standard or default and universal and women are other, what conclusions flowed from that insight? First of all, it gives you a tool with which to analyze concrete situations in the world. For example, there is often an assumption that men are the people in power. If a man is in power, people don't mention his gender. But if a woman is in power, people pointed out. I remember when Drew Forst became president of Harvard and there was a big brouhaha because she was the first female president of Harvard, right? She had to give an interview where she says, I'm not just the woman president of Harvard, I am the president of Harvard. That tells you exactly what's at stake here. If woman is always marked as the specific, the particular, the relative, and that's another way of also being the other, then they will go on about your gender. As Drew Faust herself stressed, she was not just the woman president of Harvard, she was the president of Harvard. To say I'm the president of Harvard is to claim the universal. The term president, this is in Beauvoir's sense, the term president can be filled by anyone. It's just that men had hijacked that term so that the universal was de facto male. And that came out when we got a female president of Harvard. Same thing came out when Obama ran for president in 2008, where he had to make an enormous effort to present himself as a president and a presidential candidate who also was black, not the black president, because again, president is not supposed to be a marked term. Obama had to tread this balancing line between being cast as, oh, 
he's the black president, just like Faust is the woman president, just as opposed to the full authority of the universal. Well, he's the president, and so is she. Beauvoir also points out how women are othered in intellectual conversations. She knew this from personal experience. When she argued philosophical ideas with a male peer, whatever opinions or conclusions she had were held against the backdrop of being a woman. Her male peer could say, the only reason you say that is because you're a woman, not because it's true. In a sexist intellectual institution, if someone says that, then they are saying that the very fact that you're a woman blocks you from the universal. You cannot have access. And here the universal is truth, right? That's what philosophy is all about. So you cannot have the truth about Descartes. You can just have a partial female perspective. Beauvoir responded, I say it because it's true. Why does Beauvoir think? in 1949, that her only comeback is to say, oh, I say it because it's true. You can see she's claiming the universal, but she says that is not without a cost. The cost is now I'm eradicating my subjectivity. For the fact is she is a woman. And the fact is I've thought this for myself often. It's quite possible that my reading of Kant or Hegel is marked by my experiences as a woman in the world, just as a man's reading of Hegel and Kant is marked by his experiences as a man in the world. But it doesn't follow from that that only one of those count as universal truths. It means that we draw on the, the subjectivities we have in order to understand philosophy. And sexism is when you say, well, women can do philosophy if they never, ever remind me that they are a woman. So you can see there's a kind of double edge here. On the one hand, sexism will remind you all the time that you're a woman. But on the other hand, it will tell you that if you want to do really great philosophical work, you should pretend to argue as if you were a man. Beauvoir exposes that uh, dilemma perfectly and so early. So th th this was totally new. It's hard to understand how radical this book was. Another major theme Beauvoir explores in The Second Sex is about women's freedom, or lack thereof. She's saying, if everyone has a kind of metaphysical freedom, then freedom means to be able to act and take responsibility for your actions. Um, but if woman is the other, then it is a society is trying to limit women's freedom in a way it's not trying to limit men's freedom. Again, this doesn't mean that all men are perfectly free. She, obviously, there's class and race and so on. But within each of these groups under patriarchy, women will somehow be enjoined to behave as if their destiny is given Whereas men can, in, at least in Western societies, create their destiny. Women must pick up their destiny, as it were. So Beauvoir's ideal of a just society with respect to gender is 
what she calls reciprocity. Reciprocity means that I respect you as a subject. You are an object for me. Everyone's objects for each other. But I think of when you enter my world, you're an object for me. But if I respect you as a free subject and you respect me as a free subject, then we have relations of reciprocity. It doesn't mean that we'll agree. We may fight each other. But if I quarrel about philosophy with you, I'm still respecting your freedom. My very bothering to quarrel with you shows that, right? So the idea is that through work and struggle in society, men and women should work together and respect each other as free subjects. That's that's how you get out of casting woman as the other. Beauvoir also introduces the idea of prioritizing freedom over happiness. A sexist argument back then would go something like, oh, you want women to go out to work, but they are so much happier at home with their children and their, their houses. And it's hard to be go to work in factories or so on. And Beauvoir says, very uh, curtly, well, it's always easy to declare happy a situation you yourself don't want to share. Like, they are so happy in their housewife role, whereas I, being a 1950s French male, would never be a housewife, of course. Beauvoir is careful not to generalize or portray all women as victims. They do have freedom, but they don't always use it, and they don't always use it for good. She thinks that women are free and responsible for their actions, but that society turns on women and try to make them um, forget that they are free subjects, that women are often helping to oppress other women. And that we are ultimately responsible for trying to live in good faith authentically. And that means acting as if you know that you have choices. The whole of the second sex is about how the culture takes that consciousness of choices and freedom away from women. So she's not saying like if you are oppressed in a super sexist culture, then you're free to just go about rise up. That's not what she's saying. But she's not saying either that a person should live through their whole life and say, okay, things were as they were and I couldn't change anything. For her to live in a state of consciousness of unfreedom is authentic. You may not have the power to act, but at least you're not going along with it um, in your consciousness. So um, I think it's important to remember that she is not arguing that all women are oppressed by all men uh, or that every woman is a victim. She is trying to make us analyze these things in their full complexity. And as current debates show, it's as hard now as ever. So the famous line from her work is, one is not born, but rather becomes a woman which is an amazing formulation. What did she mean by that? Okay, we are present at the birth of a baby. Someone says, it's a girl. And that's when the whole process begins. So in that moment, 
the world is seeing you as a girl and you get your identity from the gaze of the other. It's when the others look at you and say it's a girl that they start treating you as a girl and then you use your freedom to respond to them. So we and we respond differently depending on what class, race, place and so on. That's the situation, right? Our situation gives us different forms of responses and then we are individuals too. That's why for Beauvoir, women don't really have to have that much in common quite concretely. Beauvoir is not an identity thinker. She's not thinking about women's identity, but about women's actions and responses. So that for Beauvoir, the whole point is sexist ideology tries to homogenize women as if they were one thing. And But women are as multiple and various as men. And if women were free, we would see that. So to say one is not born, but rather becomes a woman means that you are caught out in an ideological machinery. So let's talk now about its afterlife. It appears to have helped catalyze and strengthen, you know, what we call now second wave feminism. I'd love to hear you know, a little bit of kind of the history of feminism from you. What was first wave and what was second wave? First wave feminism is, the quickest way of saying it is, this was the struggle for the right to vote, but it's also the struggle for women's right to edu- higher education. You be, get, it starts in the middle of the 19th century. Early writers in that mode would be John Stuart Mill. And then, of course, my countryman, Henrik Ibsen, in plays like A Doll's House, where a woman leaves her family to get an education. But essentially, the big thrust of the first women's movement was 1880 to 1920 or 30 and culminated in the uh, women's right to vote. Women gained the right to vote in the U.S. in 1920 with the passage of the 19th Amendment. The next big change came during the Second World War when a lot of women in the U.S. went to work in factories and took over jobs previously held by men who were now fighting overseas. Women who worked outside the home during the war rarely held leadership positions in the workplace, those roles still dominated by men. But things did begin to change again in the 1960s. There's a lot of liberatory forces going on in the 60s. And women were in all these movements and they made one, ex- they had a one common experience, which is that they were always being sent to make the coffee and do the photocopying and rarely got leadership's roles. And um, from there, the women's second women move- women's movement started. Second wave feminism lasted about 20 years, from the 1960s through the 1980s. This movement broadened the discussions from first wave feminism and addressed issues of workplace inequality, familial roles, sexuality, and reproductive rights. The second sex played a crucial role in second wave feminism, but when it was originally published in 1949, the radical ideas were not fully accepted by all readers. There was outrage. The communists hated it because it was too individualist, they thought. A lot of men said it was way too full of private sexual material 
material because there are chapters on sexuality. Uh, François Mauriac, the famous Catholic uh, novelist, said to one of Beauvoir's uh, collaborator uh, at Les Temps Modernes, their journal, well, now your employer has shown her vagina in public, which... So they were shocked at the sexual explicitness, which is nothing more than discussion of the importance of virginity, sex in marriage, the at the time, the belief that there was such a thing as frigid women, that if women couldn't have orgasms, it was their problem, nothing to do with whatever the man was up to. And I'm talking about heterosexual relations here. And so it, it was met with outrage, but it was also a bestseller. And it was published in uh, America in 1953 and created quite a lot of uproar here too. Uh, people like Mary McCarthy and Elizabeth Hardwick were very critical about it. Lorraine Hansberry, the famous African-American writer of plays like Raisin in the Sun and so on, wrote a fantastic essay on the second sex that was unfortunately not published before she dies, but she wrote it around 1960. And she saw what Beauvoir was doing, possibly because Hansberry had thought about racism and could see what was going on in this text. Then we have the great writers of the second movement in America, Betty Friedan, the feminine mystique. She did not write the feminist mystique just like so. Betty Friedan was an intellectual who read The Second Sex in the 50s and many years later acknowledged that The Second Sex was a major inspiration for her book, which I think that in The Feminine Mystique, if there are a footnote, if she may mention Beauvoir, but she never says like half of this is my, at my use of Beauvoir's ideas. So uh, then you have, that's 1963 with Friedan. In 1969, Kate Millett publishes Sexual Politics, also a very important second wave book. It's essentially cribbing off Beauvoir's ideas. And over uh, 800 pages, there are three footnotes to Beauvoir. Later, Millet too came out and said, oh yeah, I, of course, couldn't have written it without Beauvoir. So we may wonder why we get this idea that the second sex was instantly embraced by the second wave. It wasn't as simple as that. People read it, young women in the 60s read it and loved it, but the leadership was often more, should we say, reluctant to acknowledge Beauvoir's intellectual strength and her pioneering status. By now, I think we do it, but there was a long period where Beauvoir was not considered theoretically correct, that off in the 80s and 90s, 80s maybe. But by now, I think that scholars see that she's to my mind, she is obviously the greatest feminist philosopher in the 20th century, bar none. So, uh, but it has taken a long time to get to the point where that's even sayable. And I still don't think all feminists would agree. But then I don't expect all feminists to agree about anything ever. So <laughs> that's fair enough. What was the world that Beauvoir sought? Did she describe... A, a world of more equal relations? 
She wanted a world in which woman was no longer the other, where women just as much as men had access to what we have called the universal. That is that if I say to you, oh, I met this interesting philosopher yesterday, you won't automatically answer, oh, and what did he say? You know, there's that, that's part of it for her. A just and equal society is a society in which men and women respect each other as equally free and responsible subject, where men and women work together side by side in work and struggle. So we work together, we struggle together, we see each other as free subjects, and um, Then we get rid of huge class distinctions and get a proper democratic system. And then we may have made progress. Simone de Beauvoir began the second sex with a single question in mind. What has it meant for me to have been born a woman? Through this philosophical and personal reflection, Beauvoir was able to shine a light on the gender inequalities of society and the forces that perpetuate them. A lot has changed since this book was first published in 1949. And Beauvoir paved the way for a lot of that positive change. I think that what we owe one another, feminists or not, is a proper acknowledgement of the achievements of our forebears. And I think that one thing feminists in the second wave discovered is how quickly women's work and achievements are forgotten. So each new generation of feminists seem like seemed forever like they had to reinvent the the gunpowder, as it were. They had to begin from the beginning again. So I, I do think that to write about modern feminism in ways that marginalize Simone de Beauvoir is not... It's not that we have to agree with everything she did, because she's a historically situated subject too. What she managed to say in 1949 was astonishing, but it was 1949, that's 70 years ago. So we'd expect some changes to have taken place, and she would be the first to agree with that. Nevertheless, we cannot write about 20th century feminism without saying, seeing that Beauvoir laid the foundation for just about every debate we've had ever since. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant, Liza French, and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Farron Dew. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.